1: In the past week, as people fretted over trade wars and the decline in tech shares, 10-year Treasury yields quietly but very steadily moved back toward that 2.95% threshold, getting back toward that 3% uh, line in the sand at which many investors said they would pile back into the debt. Joining us now to figure out what's behind this move, what does it mean about the global economy, and where should investors take their money? Is Dave Lafferty, Chief Market Strategist at Natixis Investment Managers. He joins us here in our 1130 studios. Dave, thank you so much for being here here. I'm trying to make sense of this. We're talking about a flattening yield curve and we're also talking about a steadily climbing 10-year treasury yield. Are we looking at stagflation? Uh,
2: I don't think we're there yet, certainly. I do think inflation is part of the story that we've seen in the yield curve, uh, uh, I should say, in, in terms of 10 years backing up. Uh, we've seen that the correlation between things like the price of oil uh, and inflation break-evens have been uh, fairly consistent. So as oil's backed up, it seems like inflation expectations are backing up. We've seen a little bit of the risk-off trade that we've seen around geopolitics fade. I think that's allowing yields at the long end to back up a little bit. And there's still the, the underlying strength in the global economy. I still think that the equilibrium rate for interest rates out the yield curve is still higher. Uh, If we look at nominal rates versus nominal growth, which should be related, At something like the five-year tenor in the long run. I don't think we're going to get anywhere near this in the short run. But in the long run, the five-year treasury is probably 75 basis points below where it probably ought to be in the long run. uh, uh, Nominal growth versus nominal yield, meaning the yield is much lower than nominal growth is right now.
0: Uh, David... uh Macro. In your note, you write about the macro peak reached in January with, quote, synchronized global growth and tax cut euphoria, right? If that's correct, why would you want to be buying into a market that has those kinds of headlines? Why wouldn't you want to just sit and wait for everything to go, as they say, you know, pear-shaped? and then buy assets. What do you want to buy assets when you're at the top or near the top of a cycle?
2: Yeah, it's a great point. So this is why I think I've been a little bit more cautious because uh, at the end of the day, we tend to be more value investors in the long run. Um, And as I mentioned, sort of you had that macro euphoria. If you went back and read everybody's 2018 outlooks that we all wrote in 2017, it was all about that quote, synchronized global growth. The global economy was priced to perfection in the fourth quarter and into January, uh, and I think that makes it a that, that makes it for the, both the equity markets and for the global economy a very high bar to get over. So again, the underlying fundamentals we like the long term trend. It's not uh it's not that we we're telling people to get out of the market, but I think you have to be a little bit more cautious given how much euphoria had been priced into the market.
1: When was the last time that you changed your recommended allocation?
2: Uh, (laughs) interestingly enough, it hasn't changed much. I've been sort of in this low beta camp for a few years, uh, going back to, uh, you know, we, we had been fairly bullish.
1: I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I mean, with respect to the, uh, the bonds, the stocks, the cash, that's what I'm talking about. The ratios.
2: Uh, well, again, it depends on the client, but for an over, let's say a, a plain Jane, 60, 40 mix, It really hasn't changed that much in a couple of years. What would make you change it? What would make me change it is if I thought the global economy was beginning to falter more than what we've already seen. Uh, We don't see the underlying trends changing that much. Uh, So I do think there may come a time to get bearish. We're not there yet. I will, however, say that the gap, this idea that equities were the only game in town if you went back a year and a half ago you had stocks that weren't that expensive you had all this global QE the the gap the the uh, the uh, equity risk premium had gotten extremely wide well now yields have started to back up so bonds look a little bit more attractive. PEs have gone up, so earnings yields on the equity market have come down. There's still a big gap between fixed income and equity, but it's not nearly as big as it was before. But we were never that massively optimistic in the first place. Uh, I, I think that... Market timing is pretty hard, so it's better to be slightly de-risked going into a risk-off environment than hoping that your clients are going to be able to time the markets correctly, which never seems to be the case.
0: Right. So if that's never the case, why not take some money off the table when everybody is trying to figure out reasons to be bullish? you got earnings. You take a look at the global economy, as you just said. Uh, Oil prices, even though you get tweets from the president, oil prices barely move. You got oil at around $67 a barrel. If all things are benign and sanguine, why not take a little money off the table and then wait when everybody else is panicking and hitting the sell button?
2: Yeah, I still think the global economy is strong enough where, uh, it, it, if the implication is take some money off or be mildly defensive, that makes sense to us. But it's not a scenario where you want to be bailing out. The global economy is still probably growing at almost a 35 to 4% run rate, I think 38 39 No, but I mean, you
0: can at least take some of the profits, and then you let the money that you made move, and you take out your original investment, so at least you have some dry powder if in case you end up with a scenario where people say, I'm getting out and then you get to get back in.
2: Yeah. And this is the, the sort of the notion I was mentioning before. It isn't really our view of jumping out of the market. It's staying in the market, but being more defensive in terms of doing it. So those could be things like option hedging or low vol or minimum uh, beta, low, low variance strategies. Our, our advice is, are there ways to be in the market without sticking your neck out too far? Thanks very much for being with us. Dave
0: Lafferty is the Chief Market Strategist for Natixis Investment Managers. What is it like to be a value investor? Well, that's why we ask Scott Black. He is the president of Delphi Management to be our guest. He joins us from Boston, home to Bloomberg 1061 Boston Newburyport and 1330 in Metro West in the South Shore. Scott Black, always a pleasure. How do you define value investor?
3: Uh, Really, a value investor is somebody that sticks to a discipline throughout all cycles and buys absolutely low PEs or buys consistently at a price to break up that's close, you know, below theoretical value of where the breakup value is. And so it's, you know, the old Benjamin Graham, the idea is to get that margin of safety by not paying
0: up. How difficult has it been to maintain that disposition of being a value (laughs) investor in the last, let's say, 12 to 24 months?
3: How about in the last uh, 10 years? It's been very difficult, to be frank with you. I mean, even though our companies come through with earnings, they don't seem to get much respect. The bottom line is systematically, especially with the emergence of the ETFs, value has systematically trailed growth over the last five and 10-year period.
1: Scott, I I know that you recommend to your clients to target companies that pay high dividends, I wonder at what point those companies will look less attractive to you when you can actually start earning something on cash.
3: No, the bottom line is that we, we own a panoply of companies that are low P. There's some that have dividend yields, which I was going to suggest a few to your readership so they don't have to buy junk bonds. It's not necessary that we have companies with dividend yields. But we like companies that generate lots of free cash. So, I mean, I can give you a couple of Go examples. Go ahead. Give us Com-
0: some examples. Okay.
3: Okay, here's one, uh, High Crush, it's an LP, it's basically one of the largest producers of frac sand in the United States. It's a $11.90 stock, and they're going to earn about 240. It's a 5p, selling at 1.3 times book, and they just bumped the dividend again to 90 cents annualized. You get the 7.6% yield, and the earnings are exploding this year. Um, last year they did about one, they They'll do 240 to 245. And as you know, you've been watching. Um, fracking has done wonders for Americans production. We're up to 10.5 million barrels a day. Last year, we were at 9.3 million. And you need to use a lot of this fine sand to frack it. And they have roughly a 13 share of the whole United States market. So you have the wind to your back, plus you're getting paid while you wait. And the stock is ridiculously
0: cheap. How did you find High Crush? Did you go to Houston? No.
3: You know, what we do oftentimes, we do a lot of mathematical screening initially, PIM. And then if it looks attractive, we call and visit the company. So we've talked to the management on this company, you know, several times. We never buy anything, as they say, off the charts or on a whim. We always talk to management to see if they're really under control and whether they have certain targets for returns on capital and growth and revenue and earnings per share.
0: All right, let's talk about another one. Give us another name cuz High Crush symbol HCLP as you said uh, based in Houston paying about a 6 a 7.6% dividend right now.
3: Okay, now another one that I like is part of the Aries Group. But it's the BDC, the Business Development Corp. It's Aries Capital, ARCC. The stock is roughly fifteen ninety-six. It sells below tangible book. It's $0.96 cents on the book. The dividend's $1.52 with a 9.5% yield, and about a $6.8 billion market cap. And they'll learn this year about $1.60, so it's a 10 PE, selling below book. Um, they make very few mistakes in their portfolio, less than 1% historically and the uh the company will grow its organic portfolio by about five or six percent. But this is one company that benefits from rising rates. They are asset sensitive, not liability sensitive. For example, ninety one percent of the the portfolio loans float, so rates go up, but eighty two percent of their funding is fixed. And so for each hundred basis points in LIBOR adds sixteen cents a share. So as interest rates rise, they benefit very nicely. That's good. And uh
1: what yep. have returns been like on these uh, cash rich companies?
3: Well, over time, um, probably Aries with the dividend has probably done about double digits between the growth and, and, and but, the stock price over time and then the dividend. High Crush is a relatively new company, so it doesn't have a long history.
1: But I mean, relative to, say, the broad index.
3: I, I, as I say, you, you, I, you can't look at it the, on that basis because I'm buying it now on a statistical basis that they're cheap. You know, there are certain times, you know, let's say in the, after the market crash in 08, I'll give you an example. I was able to buy Oracle and Microsoft. They sold it out types of PEs. There are opportunities. It's not that we're going to put them away forever, you know, our longest term holdings have been things like Berkshire Hathaway, which we've owned forever. But these are just opportunistic because the valuations are so cheap at this current time.
0: So Scott, what's the biggest mistake? Give you 30 seconds. What's the biggest mistake investors make when they think that they are a value investor, but they're not?
3: Well, they think if a company used to sell at at 25 PE and it's now an 18 multiple, that somehow is value. That's a relative value because that's roughly the market multiple. The idea, if you're a value investor, is really to stick to absolute valuation. And the other thing is to stay away from the ups and downs. Forget about technical analysis. You have to have your own conviction about the company. And if, if something's out of favor, oftentimes that's the time to buy it. Because when the consensus is good, you'll be buying stocks off the high, not off the low. Scott
1: Black, thank you so much for joining us. Scott Black, president of Delphi Management, uh, overseeing about a billion dollars from Boston. And uh, disregard technical analysis, I'm sure some people... Tim, we are really lucky to have our next guests hitting a very hot topic right now, and that is medical marijuana, in particular, the shifting tides of uh, major politicians who have previously opposed uh, marijuana use, even on the medical front, but are changing their tune. I want to offer a warm welcome to the former Massachusetts Governor William Weld, as well as Kevin Murphy, chief executive officer of Acreage Holdings, which is the medical marijuana business uh, that has garnered support from uh, former Governor Weld, as well as from John Boehner, uh, the former Republican Speaker of the House who once said he was, quote, unilaterally opposed to decriminalizing marijuana laws. I want to start with you, Kevin, um, yourself as a uh, former uh, alternative money manager for Stanfield Capital Partners. What drew you to this business and what do you attribute uh, the shifting tide right now in sentiment?
4: Well, first and foremost, thanks so much for having me on the program Uh, My shift really had come in 2010, 2011, when I was introduced to the space by a friend, and I was very skeptical about marijuana in general, didn't have a strong working relationship with the plant, um, so it really wasn't uh, for me, but... um, When I had done further due diligence on the business itself and having run a multi-billion dollar money management firm, understanding business and the operating leverage in that business, um, it was that coupled with um, the medicinal value of this plant could potentially be the silver bullet um, for the medical community over the next 20 to 30 years. It is simply remarkable what this plant can do for children with epilepsy, um, people with cancer, and the list goes on and on.
0: I wanna focus for just a second not on the medicinal potential for cannabis, but on the financial potential for cannabis. Uh, William Weld, former governor of the state of Massachusetts from 1991 to 1997, you have a bit of experience when it comes to state uh, finances. Uh, what do you believe to be the main obstacles for lawmakers to approve the legal sale of cannabis? Forget the medical part of it for just a moment. When you have for many years already had the legal sale and taxation of tobacco products, the legal sale and taxation of alcohol products. Uh, We don't necessarily have a prohibition on substances that we know can create health issues if indeed they exist. What about the financial implications of taxing cannabis and using that money to fill all of these budget holes?
5: Well, nothing is holding back legislators in any state from doing that, absolutely nothing. Not fiscal policy, not criminal law, Nothing. That's why, uh, that's why nine states have already legalized so-called adult rec, adult recreational use. Uh, I, I supported uh, question four in Massachusetts, my state, back in the 2016 election, and that passed despite being opposed by almost all the politicians in the state except this former politician. But so why do they oppose it? Well, I think it's a cultural thing. You know, it takes a little getting used to. Some people probably their their uh, buried antipathy towards cannabis goes all the way back to the 1930s when the you know the movie Reefer Madness and the federal government really came down hard on it. It's almost like the panic that beset everybody in the 1980s about crack cocaine. They thought it was going to you know take over our streets, and it's simply not true. One thing both Speaker Boehner and I think is right on the table now as a legal issue is to deschedule cannabis as a class one narcotic in Washington, DC. I mean, that is supposed to be for drugs with absolutely no redeeming medicinal value whatsoever. We already know that's not true. I mean, I endorsed medical marijuana back in 1992, my second year in office, for uh, relief from uh, nausea from chemotherapy and glaucoma. And even then, it was known that uh, the drug was uh, helpful in treating those. Um, We know more now than we used to. People have focused on the fact that there are other cannabinoids besides thc in the cannabis plant there's uh uh, cbd which uh, has none of the potentially negative effects of thc and is enormously helpful in uh, treating uh, pain anxiety um so you know i i got into this in fact i jumped at the chance because I spent a couple of hours with Murph, Kevin Murphy, and I could see uh, his passion about doing something on the medical side. Most of his acquisitions were on the medical side. We're not opposed uh, but, uh, to uh, adult rec, but we think that's that's up to the states. And, yeah. you know, I note with approval that candidate Trump during the election said, adult rec, that's a states' rights issue. And he has now said, we want to hear comments uh, to the FDA by uh, April 23rd on descheduling uh, cannabis as a class one narcotic. Those are two very hopeful signs from the president.
1: Yeah. Uh, Kevin, I, I want to get your sense. Um, Acreage Holdings operates currently in 11 states, it's headquartered in New York. I just want to know given the backing of uh, Governor Murphy, here, uh, Governor here, who uh, is joining us now, as well as John Boehner, do you expect to uh, expand? much more or do you think that uh, it's going to be tepid and, and what about financing?
4: we do anticipate expanding having um, again been in the financial services business um, it, this is much like cable this is much like cellular. this is a business that has started out as a fragmented business. Uh, you can look back 2025 20, years, Uh, The cable industry, the cellular industry had thousands of players. Today, there's five to 10 players in both sector. Um, Acreage being the largest footprint in the country today, we anticipate maintaining that pole position. So what we're here to do is bring the finest operators we can with the best people we can and no better place to start than with the speaker and the governor.
1: Governor Weld, I just want to get your sense in 20 seconds. Uh, do you foresee a lot more support coming, particularly from the Republican delegation in Congress for this? I, I
5: do. 94% of the country wants uh, adult rec, uh, uh, wants medical marijuana. 61% wants adult rec. It's it's coming. And uh, Acreage Holdings, you know, I'll let the cat out of the bag. We want to be a consolidator in the industry. The management is 100% blue-chip Wall Street background, that's a good combination with the passion that Kevin Murphy also brings to the table. I want to thank you both for joining
0: us. So William Weld, he is the former governor of Massachusetts. Uh, joining us here in studio with Kevin Murphy, he's the chief executive of Acreage Holdings, uh, the largest multi-state cannabis operator in the country. And uh, just to note that uh, just today, opening in New York City, that the Los Angeles-based cannabis retailer MedMen is launching its first dispensary in New York City. And uh, it will be open for on-site consultations with pharmacists to determine best-fit remedies for chronic pain and other ailments diagnosed by doctors.
1: Competition heating up. Could be. President tweeting today on oil and OPEC. Looks like OPEC is added again, he wrote, with record amounts of oil all over the place, including the fully loaded ships at sea. Oil prices are artificially very high. No good and will not be accepted. Joining us now, Joe Carroll, U.S. energy reporter and Houston bureau chief. Joe, we've gotten so much news on oil in the past 24 hours, with OPEC deciding to continue cutting production despite uh, declines in the stockpiles, President Trump tweeting, shale production facing challenges. What should traders focus on as to the direction
6: of crude? You know the real fundamental issue out there, and 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 it's it's what's it's what really drove the uh, the rise in prices. Is OPEC has been uh, uh, uncharacteristically uh, you know disciplined in, in imposing these uh, these cuts uh, since late uh, 2016, and and they've they've uh, what we found this week is they they've pretty much wiped out the uh, the glut that uh, that led to the to the collapse in 2014 and 15 uh, in the first place. Uh, so so supplies are definitely tightening uh, overseas and, and here in in the U.S. And uh, we're we're just seeing that reflected in prices.
0: Joe, if you were to take us on a trip to the Permian Basin in uh, West Texas and New Mexico, what would we find?
6: Well, we'd find the roads are clogged um, and a little bit, and crumbling a bit, just because there's so much heavy truck traffic. Uh, we might find it hard to get uh, served at a restaurant, and you'd find hotel prices that would compete with what you'd pay there in uh, in Midtown Manhattan. Uh, there, there's just so much uh, activity uh, in the Permian. Uh, you know, the unemployment rate in Midland, which is sort of the, the unofficial capital of, of the Permian Basin, uh, the unemployment there rate there is around, around 2%, um, where, where the rest of the state of Texas is around four uh, it's just it, it's a classic boom story and, and they just can't get enough uh get enough uh, people there to fill the jobs
0: okay While well, i was going was the idea that if you have this increased output and i believe output is projected to climb to four million barrels a day within two years that's up from three million barrels uh, is, is that going to be enough to uh offset whatever production cuts we get from opec
6: you know, it's uh, it's it's an interesting question because the Permian just continues to grow. It grew right through the bust as well. It, it the Permian didn't require uh, sixty or seventy dollars oil for folks to to ramp up drilling activity. They they were making money when oil was was forty dollars. <throat> Uh, so so the, the question is, it, it, the question really isn't about these OPEC sort of self-imposed limits. It's what's going to happen to places like Venezuela, which has this one of the, the, the richest oil endowments in the world, but the country is spiraling down almost faster than we can chronicle it. And so, if and when Venezuela sort of drops out of the oil market uh, for all intents and purposes, then, then you're really going to see really see a, a squeeze. The, and the other end, the other side of that would be, uh, it, you know, if next month uh, the Trump administration decides to reimpose sanctions on Iran, um, you know, and cuts off some of the, th- those oil supplies, That then you, you'll probably see another big jump in prices.
1: So is this sort of is the swing factor, uh, the shale producers, and, you know, there are all of these massive players that could come on or offline. Shale producers, though, could ramp up production more than they currently have, Correct.
6: Yeah, what's really holding back the uh, the shale folks, especially in West Texas and New Mexico, it's not an inability to find the oil or, or or to or to you know get it out of the ground. It's that they just don't have enough pipeline capacity, or truck capacity, or railroad capacity to move it to uh, ports. You know, the nearest port or refinery is 500 miles away from uh, from most of the Permian. So well, so they they need to lay more pipes.
1: Where I wanted to go with this is that Schlumberger uh, said today that shale drillers are facing quote production challenges that will stunt their ability to fill the impending gap between supply and demand. Uh, what do you make of that? Is this something we should pay attention
6: to? Yeah, and that's exactly what he was talking about, that, that uh, uh, you know, because the main driver is West Texas and New Mexico. Uh, it's about pipe capacity and, and truck drivers and, and railroads. Um, the challenges they're facing is it, it's, it's one of, it's, it, it, they're all above ground, uh, that, that you just can't move the oil out fast enough.
0: Joe, you mentioned Venezuela. give you 30 seconds. I want your thoughts on Pemex and what's going on in Mexico.
6: You know the the Mexican opening has been has has been amazing. Uh, you know, they, they they managed to attract the the, the the pickiest of the of the giant international oil explorers. Uh, it, it it only took them about two tries to to get their contract structure right. Uh, you know they succeeded in a way say Iraq uh, has not in in enticing the uh, you know these uh, the Exxon's and the Shell's of the world uh, to to really come in uh, aggressively.
0: I want to thank you very much for joining us. Joe Carroll, our U.S. energy reporter, Houston bureau chief. Uh, You can uh, follow Joe on Twitter at jcarroll. And get this, uh, I-C-H-G-O. Got to add that all together.
1: All right. uh, This is fascinating. And frankly, the implications of this are massive uh, with respect to where oil prices go from here. Uh, They go higher, higher gas prices, more inflation. Is that a good thing? Not clear.
0: There you go. At J. Carroll, C-H-G-O. <laughs> Bam, he's here in the studio with us. Joe Mysock, editor for the Bloomberg Brief for Municipal Markets. And uh, Joe, uh, I don't know, let's start with the idea that there are 6 million Six million investors who now claim tax-exempt interest. This is a pretty high number, isn't it?
7: This is a big deal. The um, uh, the municipal market has been experiencing declines in the number of investors who claim tax-exempt interest for almost a decade, and uh, this was the first major increase over six million. You know, that's not a bad number. The peak was six and a half million. And uh, if I had to guess, I would say uh, we're heading more back in that direction as people appreciate the benefits of tax-exempt income.
1: That's, I want to say why, especially after the tax cuts.
7: Well, uh, the, in, the investors who live in the uh, states where the uh, state and local tax has been uh, killed or... Negated, if you will, uh, they're going to look for some place to hide their uh, income, and uh, the tax-exempt market is one of the few uh, shelters left.
0: Is it also because of the convenience? because you know you can always do the math and say well you know if you invest in this it's going to give you a higher after tax income you do this also with munis you know you figure out what the taxable equivalent yield is and so on but is there also just a convenience factor of having tax exempt income
7: mm, interesting you know i'm 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 not sure about that because the uh, municipal market has long battled the uh, uh negative ease of access uh, meaning, uh, municipal bonds are available in five thousand dollar minimum denominations, and generally speaking, your broker doesn't want to talk to you unless you're going to order twenty five or fifty thousand right. dollars.
0: Yeah, that's why I was. That's why I brought that up. Uh, okay, I, I, can we turn to the the actual supply of municipal bonds? You're smiling. You like this
7: topic? We can. It's great. You know, with this week, we uh, broke thirteen billion for the first time, uh, all year for the first time since back in December, and uh, you know, at that point, we were coming off of a record volume month. Um, you know, it was like $62-plus plus billion billion. Uh, so $13 billion, and, um, you know, things are looking up. So far this year, the municipal market is off about 25%, and uh, that, of course, is uh, bad news for all the underwriters and financial advisors and bond lawyers out there, let alone the salesmen.
1: So uh, talking about the positive edges of the municipal bond market, I just want to bring the conversation down a little to a little more depressing place. I want to go to Puerto Rico. Uh, I want to talk about how uh, the power has gone out again in most of the island and uh, the fact that uh, that a lot of bond investors are actually suddenly profiting in big uh, in a big way from their holdings right now is rubbing people. The wrong way. Can you explain how the Puerto Rican government is upgrading its financial expectations, giving bond buyers uh, a positive feeling? How does that cohere with another blackout and the situation on the island?
7: Deep and dark.
1: Yeah, we were just talking. We we're gonna we we're gonna name our show that. Man. Um, <laughs> Happy Friday. <laughs> go ahead. Go. Uh,
7: you know. Puerto Rico is is looking down the line and uh, sees uh, some good days ahead because there's going to be so much money invested uh, by insurance companies uh, and reconstruction of the island. So they're looking forward to that. Uh, you know, when you talk about uh, bondholders uh, profiting, you're talking about a relatively small group of speculators who bought in at 20 cents in the dollar and 25, 30 cents in the dollar and who are now looking at 40 45 cents the dollar If they wanted to sell
1: I think that the issue here is and and you know you talk to people who buy bonds and they say look the only reason why this financing is available is because of the contracts that govern it right and if people just feel like those contracts get broken then the borrower is unable to tap markets again that is the penalty right and so here we have a situation where Puerto Rico uh, could decide to just not pay right? I mean, and, and so then the bonds would not be worth even where they're trading right now.
0: Those words not pay, That you should see the, the expression on Joe Mysack's face well, when you I, say I'm not, not pay, and I'm not arguing
1: <laughs> I'm not arguing for them to do this. I'm just raising sort of the political backdrop that this is coming at.
7: Repudiation. Confederate States of America. the um, uh, In 2015, the governor said the debt is not payable. And that was the the sort of crack of doom. Um, so now it's really going to be more of a legal settlement. Uh, you know, I'm not sure you could say, well, we're going to write it off to zero. Yes, there have been some people who suggest that. But as you pointed out, if Puerto Rico is going to have access to uh, the markets to raise more capital at some point, they have to make some sort of token gesture on the outstanding debt, especially the general obligation and the COFINA debt.
0: And just to put this in some kind of perspective, the uh, federal board that oversees the uh, Commonwealth's finances says spending cuts, improving tax collections, you could end up with a surplus over the next six years uh, of uh, $6.7 billion. Thanks very much, Joe Mysack, editor for the Bloomberg Brief for Municipal Markets. Check it out on Briefs Go on the Bloomberg.